welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! And we are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. And he, Elijah, arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Maloha, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have here and every Sunday by your grace to hear your word. Father, would we be molded by what you have revealed to us? Give us your Holy Spirit that we would understand the very things of God. Father, thank you that you're pleased to meet us in all of our doubt and all of our brokenness and all of our sin because Jesus was a curse absorber on the cross for us. As we come in faith to him, we hear a gracious welcome. Would we know the welcome of Jesus to him and through him into the world here this morning? Do a good and gracious work here. Now we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. Sometimes I make jokes that make me a little sad. And maybe I'm not the only one. You make a joke, you think it's funny, but then it's also a little bit sad at the same time. Here's one and a little bit of context. 
when I was a younger chap and I would hear from other people younger than I, hey, I'm thinking about and I'm wondering, I'm pretty sure that God is calling me to ministry. Whether it's, I think God is calling me to be a lead pastor or working in a church in another capacity, maybe an associate pastor or youth ministry or kids ministry or campus ministry, but I feel the call of God to be a full-time minister or missionary in my life. When I was younger, I used to say, that's awesome. That's so good. Proud of you. Would love to pray for you. It's going to be great. But now, when I hear from younger folks that this is what they want to do, I'll go home, mention it to Emily, and my joke is, don't do it. Why do you want to do that? That's the craziest thing in the world for a person to do right now. Don't go into full-time ministry. That's my joke, and it makes me a little bit sad. But the reason that I'll say that under my breath is because I've seen a couple of things by this point in ministry. I've seen plenty of full-time vocational ministers in various capacities. They'll burn out or flame out. I've seen so many marriages pushed to the brink of collapse and then beyond. I've seen ministry families struggle year after year after year in a state of perpetual financial insecurity. And it sure seems like, as I get older, for every one relative success, in full-time vocational ministry, there's 10 instances where, wow, that just went really off track and was pretty rocky. And I want to say to the person, hey, have you thought about starting a video store? I hear brick-and-mortar video stores are coming back. Maybe, maybe Blockbuster is franchising right now. You, there, you could get it, get it the ground floor for cheap with, with this new venture. Don't go into full-time ministry. And I understand as well, for pandemic and other factors, that ministry is getting harder as polarization skyrocket across the board. And it seems like human community is driven increasingly by ideologies and not by relationships. And I look at Jesus and communities of faith in Jesus. Jesus is a person and not a platform. And he is our bond, the unity in Christ that we share there. Anybody interested? It's getting harder. But then the flip side is that it's always been the case for churches and communities of faith. Do you know what they have a lot of? They have a lot of people. And people are going to disappoint you over and over and over again. You want to go to full-time ministry? Don't do it. But if you hear me talking a little bit like that, you're hearing me in my Charlie Brown mode or my Eeyore mode a little bit, a martyrdom complex. My life and my job is so incredibly hard, harder than anybody else's. And maybe it's the case in your life, maybe you'll have those Charlie Brown, those Eeyore, those martyrdom complex moments too. Maybe a family situation, either your family or extended family, martyrdom complex, a little Eeyore, a little Charlie Brown. Woe is me. Nobody has it as hard as I do. I am bearing so much weight right now for all of these deadbeats that are all around me. Or maybe it's a work situation. Or maybe it's a school situation. 
Maybe it's a friend situation. Does anybody else care about any of this? Or am I the one, again, holding the bag for a lot of different people? Maybe it's a health situation. You might have a health struggle and you look around at so many people that don't have health struggles like you do. Or on down the line. Hard circumstances of one kind or another that put us in this Charlie Brown, this Eeyore, this martyrdom complex space. And I get it, just as a qualifier, things can be really hard. And for many of us, it's been a really hard year plus in so many different ways. But can it also be the case, at least sometimes, that we can be a little bit of drama king and drama queen at the same time? When what's reality is not necessarily aligning with our perception of how things are, and our perception of reality is a little bit off-kilter and a little bit tilted towards me, towards ourselves. And I mentioned this sort of martyrdom complex based on the sermon text here for this morning, Elijah, when twice in this passage he says, woe is me, even me, I am the only one. I have it so much worse than so many other people. And that's kind of an irony. Whether here in the West or around the world, we are a culture and cultures, persons and people who say, only I have it this bad. We are united and together in saying that we are all alone. But God knows. And God cares. And God loves and what if God can be at work in us, even now here and watching online, to bring us out of whatever little caves that we might find ourselves in right now? So let's talk in two parts from here, from 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to talk about our own short-sightedness and then how God can bring us out of the cave. Our own short-sightedness and how God can bring us out of the cave. I love the scope of the cycle of Elijah stories here in 1 Kings. And whether you've been in the room or watching online or some combination, it's been a ton of fun for me to go Sunday by Sunday through these Elijah stories. And I love the scale. We have really big, loud music when awesome things are happening. But then we have quieter scenes, including like this one a little bit too. We have the highs of Elijah and then the lows of Elijah. And maybe so far in the first couple of chapters, the first couple of Sundays in this series post-Easter, you may have had a little trouble relating to what Elijah was doing because he was doing big, awesome stuff. He's raising a person from the dead. He's being worked miracles through him with flour and oil for the widow. He calls down the fire of Yahweh upon the altar over and against all of the prophets of Baal and his altar. Rockets, red glare, really big bombastic stuff. But then we have the opposite here too. And maybe if you would have had more trouble relating to Elijah in those moments, what about when Elijah says, like he does in verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God, it's just me against all of the stuff that's against me. Maybe you can relate to that. 
maybe at a spiritual level. Jesus, I love you a lot. And I look around, does anybody else care about this stuff as much as I do? So there's a spiritual level here for sure. And then there's just a broader emotional level when you see that I'm alone. I'm working really hard, pulling my weight. Nobody else is. There's a unique singularity of difficulty that's upon me right now. And maybe you can relate to that, whether you're a committed follower of Jesus or somebody who's skeptical of realities. This is a wide berth type of emotional, spiritual struggle that Elijah's facing right here, right now. And there's different ways, I guess, that it could be summarized, but I'll do it this way. What's going on with Elijah? He is in a moment right here of bitter disappointment. He's in a moment of bitter disappointment. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes. God, I have been working really hard for you. I have made a lot of sacrifices, and here I am. I am disappointed by the reactions and responses of other people. And if I'm honest, God, I'm disappointed in you as well. Because you're not showing up. Because you're not working like I would wish that you could work now. If you're somebody who is skeptical of spiritual realities, thank you for being with us here this morning once again. And maybe, just maybe, you can listen to Elijah here, and if there is space in God's story for Elijah, maybe there's space in God's story for you as well. But if we find ourselves connecting with Elijah here in his martyrdom complex, short-sighted, Charlie Brown, Eeyore moment, this is an opportunity for us to unpack those feelings within ourselves. And when we're in a position like this of short-sightedness, is it really the case that what we're experiencing and how we're perceiving reality is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or is there more going on? Let's look at verse 10 once again to see how Elijah describes his situation. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What's going on here is that Elijah's myopia, his short-sightedness, is malforming his perspective. And one of the things that I love about going Sunday by Sunday through a chunk of the scriptures is we have a little bit of narrative memory here. What Elijah has just said in verse 10, it's not true. It's not true. We can unpack what he's saying here. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. That's a half-truth. But isn't it the case a chapter earlier when the fire of Yahweh came down on the altar, when the people all around the altar saw it and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah, what about those people? Well, you forget that I had to read that the altar was torn down, but then Elijah forgets that he's the one that in that same story rebuilt the altar. So the altar actually is in good shape right now, not bad shape, but God, they've killed all of your prophets. Elijah, don't you remember earlier when you ran into this character Obadiah who said, and you agreed, I have saved a hundred of the prophets of Yahweh, the one true God, the living Lord, and pit him in caves from Jezebel, so there's a lot more of us out there. But those are inconvenient truths to the short-sighted perspective of Elijah right now. And it's the case that our own disappointment can distort our perspectives about our situations. 
Is there any situation in your life right now where you could stand to take a moment and do some unpacking and say, is this really the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Or are my Charlie Brown glasses getting in the way a little bit of what's really going on? And then also, is such a perspective as that distorting our perspective of ourselves? So it's not just out there, the situation around us. What about us? What about we ourselves too? At the beginning of verse 10, Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Is that the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? The answer is no. And Elijah, love you, buddy. Children are named Elijah to this day. He's an awesome character. But at this point in the story, he's been a disobedient coward. He's been a disobedient coward. The cowardly part, Brandon Best, in turn, resident, church resident at Liberty Mainline, preached here on Sunday morning, and we saw Elijah acting very cowardly. Soon after, the fire of Yahweh came down. That was kind of a big deal. Elijah gets scared. The beginning of the chapter, then Jezebel, the queen, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the one of them by this time tomorrow. And then... The Bible says Elijah was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Persheba and so on. So he was running. And is Elijah really as zealous and jealous for the Lord as he's telling God here? Is he obeying? Well, actually not so much. If you've been following along Sunday to Sunday, these Elijah stories, there's a certain formula that's used by the author to connote that Elijah is being very obedient. We've talked about the command and compliance pattern, where multiple times throughout these stories, God has given a command to Elijah, and not only does Elijah obey, but the narrator, the author, uses words that are pretty much verbatim. So it's Elijah obeying the commands of Yahweh with the exact same words. Do we have command and compliance obedience here? Not so much. Beginning of verse 11. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And if this, if this was command and compliance, then the author would have said, and Elijah went out and stood on the mount before the Lord. But that's not what happens. A lot of other stuff happens for a couple of verses. We'll get to that in a moment. And then beginning of verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, so he took some time and went out and only stood at the entrance of the cave. So he's not obeying completely. And so when he says, God, I have been so jealous for you. I have been all about you. That's actually not what's going on in his mind and heart. His short-sightedness is dominating his perspective. And we don't have a super clear window into Elijah here, but maybe it's the fact that he can't see through his own pain. He can't see through his own pain. And isn't it true that when we can't see through our own pain, we're caught in this vicious cycle of pinballing back and forth between feelings of self-importance and self-loathing? No middle ground. Self-importance. I am so awesome. I'm doing everything right. I can't tolerate any data that does not comport with the fact that I am so awesome and everybody else is not awesome at all. Or any little bit of data comes to us that's negative about our self-assessment and we're totally crushed. Well, that goes to figure. I'm worthless anyway. I never do anything right. Nothing good ever comes my way. 
and we're stuck in that vicious cycle, self-importance and self-loathing. And Elijah's dug in. There's not a command and compliance pattern here. If you're listening to a podcast recently with me and Emily, the Post-Sunday Blues preaching post-mortem on our podcast feed, Emily mentioned that command and compliance is going to be the title of a parenting podcast that Emily and I are coming out with because that would be great as we think about parenting. It's not command and compliance, it's complaint and complaint ends. So there's not a repetition of obedience, but Elijah actually repeats his complaint verbatim in verse 14. Again, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Where might you be dug in? In similar ways as Elijah here. When you just keep repeating the same narrative, the same narrative, the same narrative. And it's making you more miserable or more prideful or both. People around you might not be that happy. But this is just where we're drilling down. Is there any hope for us? God, help us to take steps out of this cave. And so it's actually possible for us by the grace and help of God as we cry out to him and say, God, I really need you right now that we can grow out of our short-sighted perspectives as we come into God's reality, as we come into God's word, and as we come into God's grace. Coming into God's reality, there's so much more going on even in this story that Elijah willfully is choosing not to see right now. The verse at the very beginning is so important as far as context. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Echo after echo after echo here. 40 days, 40 nights, wandering in the wilderness. An echo of how God was faithful to his ancient people, the Israelites, wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And it's Elijah going here to Mount Horeb, which is a synonym for Mount Sinai. Elijah is at the place where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, where God revealed himself to the leader of God's people. And all of these echoes of Moses are reverberating throughout this passage. Elijah's not seeing it. And the stuff about the earthquake and the wind and the fire. He said, go out, verse 11, stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And so on. That's a callback to God placing Moses in the cleft of the rock at Mount Sinai, and God passed by. So there are deep reverberations in this very passage, God reminding Elijah, I have been so faithful to you. I have been so faithful to my people generationally. Don't lose sight of that in these moments. My reality is bigger and broader and greater and deeper than what you're feeling is your reality right now. God's reality is different. I Even only I am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. God says that's just not true at the end of the passage. I was praying this 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 week for the church in the West and around the world. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You say you're the only one? I've got not just one or two others, but thousands, 7,000. God's providence is different, and it's better. I'm still at work. This chain link of events at the end of the chapter 2. When you arrive, anoint Hazael, king over Syria, Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola. God is saying, I am at work internationally, not just within my own people. Internationally, you're going to anoint a new king of Syria. I am at work nationally within my people, the Israelites, Jehu. I am at work personally. I am going to anoint through you your successor. I've got it on all of these different fronts. And so as we take steps of faith towards this same God who is relating to Elijah here, we look and trust. There is more in God's reality for us. And not only that, we look to God's word as well. What happens after the wind and the earthquake and the fire? The text says God wasn't in all of these things. Scholars will say what that actually means is not that God was nowhere to be found in any of these things. Rather, he was not fully contained. The totality of him was not in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. To get more of the totality of God, we look at the end of verse 12. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. If you've heard Christians use the phrase the still small voice of God before, it comes from this verse in the King James Version of this passage. It's not just God's reality, look around, but it's God's word. Listen and read. We need God's speech. The Bible in the New Testament says the book of Hebrews, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Are you letting God speak? Are you not just looking and trusting, but are you listening? The great thing about Christianity is that it's a religion of revelation where we're not just sitting around saying, what do you think, what do you think? We do ask those questions of one another, but it's not just what do you think, what do you think? It's what has God said? And there is a governing word over all of our lives. And yes, is the Bible a super easy book to interpret? Of course not. We have to work, and some things we can be very certain about, other things more tentative about. But end of the day, there is a governing word over all of our lives. And for a Christian to say, I see that the Bible teaches this, but I'm going in this direction instead, is a sub-Christian confession. But there's grace on the other hand for us to be able to say, God, I hear you, and I'm going to change. There's grace and life in those moments. And there have been key moments for me where I have leaned into obedience and met God's life, where God has said, Jim, you're being selfish, you're being myopic, you're being Charlie Brown, you're being Eeyore, trust me more and obey. Those have been life-giving moments to me. Here's one quick example, and I did get Emily's permission to, to say this, so here, here's a story from early days of our marriage. Got married, moved to Philly, and everything was great. But one of our early marriage conflicts, we had a lot of them, this was one of them, but God has been gracious to pull us through various things. After living in the country, hey, here we are in the city. There's a lot of things going on. Em, let's go out. There's a lot of music shows in these awesome clubs. 
two minutes from our house. Let's go. We're making all these new friends. Let's hang out. And Emily said, hey, what I would really love to do is be with you. And we'll have time for the rest of our lives to be with friends and to see shows. But can we just stay in so that we can be with each other in these early stages of our marriage more? And I didn't like that. And so I sought second opinions. I sought second opinions from some of my non-Christian friends and from some of my Christian friends. And to disclaimer here, am I implying that non-Christian advice is always bad and Christian advice is always good? No. But it was striking in this instance where I got two different sets of advice. Non-Christian friends. Hey, should Emily let me go out on my own and see all the shows and connect with all the people I want to connect with? Yes. Jim, that's awesome. You need your gym time. And I'm like, I do need my gym time. That's right. That's why it's called gym time. It's not their time. It's my time. It's not Emily's time. It's gym time. But then there were a couple of key conversations with some older and wiser Christian guys. They said, Jim, let's roll back what you're saying here. You have a new bride that says, I have given myself to you and I love you incredibly. And in my heart of hearts, my one desire is that we would be together and spend more time with each other. You're saying that's not good enough for you. And these loving Christian men said, Jim, you're being an idiot. And they said, go back and look at the scriptures. And Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. And that was marriage-saving advice for me. Recently, the Liberty Network did a seminar for singles. And one of the things that was being talked about there is, hey, can we trust God enough for me to live a chaste life outside of marriage? Is is this good for me? Is it truly life-giving or not? And yes, there's grace and forgiveness in life for all of our histories in every potential way. I'm, I'm not saying that in guilt way at all. But can we trust God in these spaces to obey? So we can look to see God's reality. We can listen and trust in God's word. But like I just mentioned, And this is where we'll wrap up. There's grace. God's grace for all of us, for any of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter where we're from. It's harder to see in the English, but there is deep restoration and reversal here in this passage for Elijah. When God says, get up and go at the beginning of verse 15, and the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and start doing all of these profity things again. That is a dramatic and gracious reversal and restoration to cowardly, disobedient Elijah. God is saying, hey, you haven't been on my team? I'll take that deficit upon myself, and now you go. So there's forgiveness, and Elijah leaves the cave. Which brings us to the central climax of the Christian story, Jesus where he took the deficit for our disobedience upon himself and rose again. So if here in 1 Kings chapter 19, we have a disobedient man to the lip of the cave, at the center of the Christian story, we have a dead man who rose again and left the cave behind for us that we would live. To give grace completely in all of our mess, in all of our sin, 
and that grace is available for us here this morning to know the reversal and restoration of God. Here you go. It's yours. Here's the absolute one thing possible, I believe, that can give you the courage to look in the mirror and not be sucked into the vortex of self-loathing and self-importance. Here's grace that's honest about your brokenness, that's honest about your sin. You know what? You're not all that, and you do mess up but you're loved and cherished anyway, and Jesus has paid the penalty for you as you receive that by grace, through faith. And it's not just you on an island. The Apostle Paul himself brings up this verse in his letter to the Romans. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And for all of our disappointments, and we will be disappointed, bitterly sometimes like Elijah here, I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. But we look and we listen and we hope in the God of grace. Give us trust. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon live, speak, and serve at you later.